We come to the reading and preaching of God's Word this morning. So you want to take a copy of God's Word, grab a Bible, if you brought one with you, or if you're using one in the pew rack, you can turn to page 874 and 875. We're looking at Luke chapter 15. And here in just a moment, we'll read the entirety of Luke chapter 15, all 32 verses. There in your bulletin, it shows 11 through 32. That's where we will spend our time thinking this morning as we are continuing our summer Sunday morning sermon series to seek and to save. And we're looking at stories and teaching that is unique to Luke's gospel and what Luke is seeking to instruct us about Jesus and sinners. Uh, In this gospel uh, section in Luke chapter 15, we see the need of salvation, and it's painted for us in, you could say, four pictures of lostness. Um, It begins with giving us a context of who's there listening to Jesus, and then we see the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one that is lost. And it helps us understand that uh, to be apart from Christ is like a wandering sheep that falls into trouble and is uh, in need of rescuing. Then we see the story of a woman who has 10 coins who have lost one and then frantically searches until she finds it, turning her house upside down to find the one lost coin. And it's a picture of the lostness of sin is that we're lifeless and helpless unless we are found and captured. And then it goes from one out of a hundred to one out of ten to then one of one at first. But we find out that it's two of two that are lost in the last parable. We see the lost younger brother in his foolishness and the lost older brother in his self-righteousness. In a lot of these passages, Luke tells the story in such a way that What gets our attention is the surprise, what is unexpected. Now, if you've been around church, and most people, this is one of the most famous parables that we'll spend the majority of our time considering, it's known as the parable parable of the prodigal son, you kind of anticipate what's happening. But if you could, imagine what it would be like to have heard this for the first time. The surprise would have been the father's reaction to the younger son, but not just his reaction to the younger son, but his pleading with his older son. Before we read God's word, let us ask for his help in prayer. So please join me in praying again this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that today you would fill us with the spirit of your son. May your Holy Spirit be at work among us. And may he be to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we may know the hope to which you have called us. That we may know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. That we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. Lord, we want to believe, help our unbelief, and may resurrection power be at work in our midst through your word and spirit today. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 15. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. David Roper tells the story of his friend Edith and her testimony of how she became a Christian. She previously wanted nothing to do with religion, but one day she did attend a church near her apartment. And the text that Sunday morning was Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. But the Bible they used in that church was the old King James Version. So it was in the old English. And so those first two verses sound like this. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now that's what the preacher read, but not what Edith heard at first. She heard that this man received sinners and eateth with them. She realized she misheard him, but it got her attention. And that was her beginning of coming home to God. She saw herself in Luke 15. Just this past week, I was talking uh, to a man at our denomination's General Assembly. It's the national uh, annual business meeting for the Presbyterian Church in America. And he was an elder. And I asked him, uh, how long have you been at this church? And what church did you go to before you were at the church you're serving now? And he said, well, I didn't go to church before then. This is the only church I've ever known. And I said, all right, tell me more. And he went on to explain the way he was raised apart from God, that he was uh, a rabid atheist and he was um, in reckless living. And someone dared him to listen to a sermon on Luke 15. And he said halfway through the sermon, he was listening to, he saw himself in the younger brother and the way that he was destroying his life. And the Lord saved him. And he found a church, and now he's a ruling elder in that church. He saw himself in Luke 15. And that's part of the genius of parables and why Jesus uses them. It's not just to give vivid, real-life illustrations it's for the audience and for you and I to say, who am I in this parable? It is to teach us something about ourselves and to teach us something about God. It is a mirror of sorts held up and said, do you see yourself? So I want us to consider three things here in Luke chapter 15 this morning. I want us to consider the mirror for the tax collectors and sinners. It would seem that they were in hearing of Jesus' teaching that day. So the mirror for the tax collectors and sinners, those who were far off. But then, more directly, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, those who thought they had their act together, those who thought they were faithful and entitled to God's blessings. So we want to see the mirror for the Pharisees and the scribes, or the mirror for those who are close to home. And lastly, we'll move away from thinking about mirrors, and I want us to see the window for all sinners. We'll close with thinking about the window for all sinners. The mirror for tax collectors and sinners, those who are far off, verses 11 through 24. 
The movement of this part of the story is broken up very simply in four parts. There's the younger brother's rebellion, his repentance, his acceptance, and the celebration. That's how this first part of the parable goes, the story. It's the lost younger brother. Now, how is he lost? Well, in verses 11 through 16, we see that he is drawn out of the father's house and he desires to go off into the far country. It's an illustration of the foolishness of going our own way, the foolishness of sin. He is enticed by the temporary pleasures of a far-off country. So what does he do? Well, he says, how do I get there? I can't get there still serving in my father's house. Though every need is provided for him there, he says, this is not where I want to be. It's, there's too many constraints. There's obligations, responsibilities, and expectations. I have to live in such a way that it honors my father's house. And I want to throw off that restraint. And so immediately in verse 12, we see his ingratitude. He did something that would have been shocking to that first audience, but it's not completely unheard of. There was provisions for such a thing where you would go to your dad and say, give me what is mine now. And we see that in verse 12. Give me what would come to me when you die. Think about the ingratitude. Think about the severed relationship that has now been exposed. What we see in the story, it's not on the father's part, but the son has severed the relationship from the father. And he said, all the good things that you have, I just want that and not you. I wish you were dead right now. Give me my share of the inheritance. He would have been entitled to roughly one-third of the inheritance. And not only does he take it, but then he, he turns it into capital, he cashes it in, and he goes. And for him, the promise is that independence and freedom from all the obligations of living in the Father's house will make me happy. It is the promise of sin that if you move beyond all constraints of expectations of others or maybe of church or of family, that if you just lived as you wanted to live, that that will bring happiness. And so in verse 13, he pursues it and he does it. He does it well. And that's not a good thing. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It says that he spends what was given to him in reckless living. It's full indulgence. He's chosen instant pleasure instead of lasting joy and contentment. Now, we don't want to fill in too many gaps in a parable, but I think it's fair to say that as we look at this, this is a Jewish family and a Jewish father, and this young man would have been taught the Proverbs as a child. We can, we can, I think that's a fair speculation. And he would have known that Proverbs 5, 21, 23, maybe. He would have known this passage. It says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for the lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 
He has seen that come to life. And what has come to life is death. That's what the picture was seeing. He's become desperate. Whereas as the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, for the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. He's reaping what he's sown in his wickedness and it's coming to bear. And in this, you see the, the, the sovereign love of God pursue this young man. Like God doesn't allow him to prosper in his recklessness. That God sends a famine to the far country that he has found himself in. That God puts him in the lowest of low jobs for a Jew, feeding pigs. We see that God drives him to humiliation. That the pig was unclean for the Jew. They weren't supposed to touch it, to eat it. And now he's a hired servant. He's a servant of pigs. And we see him driven to hunger. That he's looking at these pods that the pigs are eating. That's something that only the poorest of the poorest in the most extreme and desperate situations would dare to eat. This is pig slop. And he's looking at it, and it looks like choice morsels. He's looking at it, he's like thinking filet mignon. And this is disgusting pig slop. And then through this, he finally hits rock bottom. He's lost his familial, his ethnic, his religious identity. And then the homesickness starts to creep up. And he starts considering the path back home. But here's a tension in the text. The Old Testament speaks about how to deal with such a son living like this. In Deuteronomy 21, this is what the law of God says. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men in the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. See, for the average Jew, it's more realistic that the father would kill his son, prosecuting him, bringing him for a trial, giving him up for capital punishment instead of killing a fattened calf. The father being dishonored the son proven to be a glutton and a drunkard. So what does the younger brother begin to concoct? Well, in verse 17, it says he came to himself. That's a Hebrew Aramaic expression for repentance. J.C. Ross said the worst of ignorance in the world is to not know ourselves. And it's taken him a while apparently, but now he's come to his senses. He's looking around, and he considers who his father is. His father is not like his current master. No, he remembers that 
His father is kind and good to his hired hands that his day laborers, those who do the menials and the most humiliating tasks for his father, his father gives them plenty of bread. He remembers his father's goodness. And so he says, I'll go back to him, but I can't go back on the terms of being a son. I've given that up. And if I go and plead my sonship, then Deuteronomy 21 stands an accusation against me. So he concocts a plan saying that I'll go and say I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But there is something of genuine repentance that has gripped this young man's heart. Because as he goes to him, he goes and doesn't just say, I was unwise, I'm desperate, would you show me mercy? He goes to him and says, I have sinned against you and against heaven, against God. He acknowledges his sin. He recognized that he's destroyed his relationship with his father, and he has no grounds for being treated like a son. He recognizes that ultimately his foolishness is against his creator. And what does he encounter? Well, it's the most surprising thing. He doesn't have to go out and call for a servant to bring his father out to meet him. In verses 20 through 24, we see the father is ready for him. And we see the father come accepting him. Think about the reception of the father and the verbs that Luke uses as Jesus told the story. He says he saw, he was looking for his return. He felt compassion. The father is deeply moved. And what arises out of him is not spite and anger and a demand for vindication and justice, but compassion. And then he runs. Something that would have been more difficult for him than you and I. He didn't just throw on his, his Nike shorts and run out to meet his son. He would have to pull up his garments and his robe and carry them around his thighs and waist. And it would not be a common sight to see a man of his stature and dignity to run, but he can't help himself. He runs out to meet this younger son. And he embraces him. Think of the smell. Dirty and in pig slop. Traveling from a far country. He grabs him and embraces him and begins to kiss him. No, this is a father saying, I'm ready for the relationship to be restored. But what sort of relationship will this younger brother be restored to? What does the father do? He calls to the servants and he says, bring these things. Bring the best robe. It's not, hey, he's back. Go into his room and go get his old robe. No, he took everything he had. He lost it. And the robe he used to have most probably, most probably is, is tattered and torn and unrecognizable. No, it's not restore the robe that he used to have. It's bring the best robe. Here is the robe that has been set aside for when notable guests visit and they come for a feast that we want to honor them and put this on my, my son. And then the son is trying to say, I'll, I'll, I've sinned against heaven. I want to be your servant. I'm no longer to be, the son can't get it all out. And he says, come, calls the servants, bring, put the sandals on him. 
He may have left with sandals. Those sandals are long gone. Can you imagine what it was like walking through wet mud with flip-flops and they get stuck and they're ruined? I mean, there's no sandals. There's no expectations. And he's coming to be a servant. Servants don't get sandals. This is a luxury item. He says, no, he's not will not be a servant. He will get sandals. He will get a ring. It was a sign of dignity and respect. It may have been the very signet ring that the father would use to authenticate his signature and genuineness in a transaction. He is restored to sonship, restored to relationship. It's a beautiful picture of repentance of seeing your sin and turning to God. But as you turn to God, what will you meet? Well, the God who has come to us and his eternal son who took on our flesh is illustrating for us that when you come to him, you find mercy when you deserved judgment. And it's not just a matter of withholding what you deserve. It's a matter of grace and restoring and giving more than what you deserve. You may think, I have been a long time in the far-off country. But you're never too old to learn from the youngest son. And you're never too far from God to return. But you've got to remember what it says in this text. That your lost condition is worse than you think it is. What is the refrain at both when he tells his servants and then later when he's speaking to the older son? What does the father say? This is from death to life. Death to life. In our foolish wandering and messing with sin and taking the good gifts that God has and exploiting them on our own pleasures, we are playing with death and entering towards death. But you're never too far. And the God of this passage can bring dead sinners to life. Would you turn to him and flee to him? That is the thing that Jesus wants the sinners and the tax collectors to hear as they see the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about them getting to sit and eat with Jesus, they're wondering, will Jesus have our back? What will he say? Will he defend us? What does he think of us? Will he, will he own us? Is this a temporary thing that we get to know him? What are the terms of our relationship? And he's saying, you're in, you're mine. All that I have is yours. Your past is done. You were new. That is the mirror for those who are far off. Then we see the mirror for the scribes and Pharisees in verses 25 through 32. The, the mirror for those who are nearby. In verses 25 through verse 30, we see the resistance of the older brother. The resistance of the older brother. And then in verses 31 through 32, there is the insistence of the father. We have the lost older brother. That's Jesus' point. It wasn't just one son who was lost. They were both lost. A good illustration of the, the older brother is that he is like a janitor at a beautiful botanical gardens, surrounded by 
gorgeous flowers and roses and everything blossoming around him. But he's too caught up in his role as a janitor. He only pays attention to the litter and the trash and the rotting clippings that haven't been picked up or maybe a dirty restroom. Surrounded by beauty but blind to it, he's focusing on the bad. And this is the older brother. He is near the home. He's outside the home. And when he says, what is going on? What is this celebration? This is, this is all my stuff. The younger brother's gone. Everything that is here is coming to me. Who has killed the fatted calf? The servant tells him, your father has, because your brother has come home. And anger expresses itself in self-righteousness. Now, if there would have been like a family meeting, the older brother, maybe he would have been okay with the younger brother's original proposal, saying, I can't be a son, I'll be a hired servant. And maybe he said, that's good. That's gracious. It's better than death. You better appreciate it, buddy. You're no longer with the pigs. He would have thought being the hired ham was the gracious option. It would have upheld the family's honor. It would have been worthy of celebration, but small celebration. He was thinking, this guy's returned. Now everyone would see just how good of a son I have been. Just how, just, I am the example. I didn't leave to the far country. I stayed here and I, I served my father. What we see here is that in his heart, though not in his body, the older brother, he longed for the far country too. He didn't want the father. No, there's a lot of problems with the older brother. And verse is here. He believes he needs no repentance. There, if you look back at the passage in verse 29, he says, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. And we all should say, yeah, right. Here, he is limited what obedience is. That it's just a mere external observance. And even that, we should be pretty clear that he came up short. But he believes that he has completely obeyed his father. He doesn't recognize that God requires more than outward obedience. His heart is far from the father. He is like those in verse 7 who think they have no need for repentance. That's what Jesus said, that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents over 99 who think they are righteous and have need of no repentance. But how does the brother come to this? Well, he's, he could come to that conclusion when he compares his service to his brother's folly. He believes he deserves the father's benefits and goods. He believes that he deserves honor from his father, but he really hasn't desired his father's love. No, he hasn't been living in an intimate relationship with his father. In fact, he has put distance between him and his father. He has agreed to this arrangement. He has prolonged his pleasure, not looking to spend it all instantly, but he's waiting for it. He's done the calculus. See, I can go do all this reckless spending now, or I can wait. When my day comes, it's going to be quite the day. How has he thought about his father? Back there in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. I have served you. The verb there in the Greek, it's a fine translation there, served you, but actually 
the NIV translation get this right. It says, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you. And that's the verb in the Greek, slaving. This is his attitude towards his father. There was no delight in honoring his father. He considers his service slavery. And then he has his eye on his own reward. He says, Dad, you killed the fat cat. Now, that's a big deal. You don't eat meat every day in this, t- in this time. Meat is for parties and for celebrations and festivals. And the fatted calf was something way more than one household could consume. And so you would bring in the whole town. You bring everyone together to eat. But he's not interested in that. No, more modestly. He said, you never even gave me a goat for me and my friends. Well, a goat, you can't feed a, a whole town with. You see something of the older son's disposition of me and mine and my friends. Possibly a goat dinner would be enough for him and his buddies, but he would be happy to exclude his father from sitting down for barbecue goat with his buddies. His heart is not there. Now, in fact, in verse 30, we see that a glimpse of his heart is longing too for the far-off country. Why do I say that? Well, in verse 30, he slanders his brother. Obviously, his brother's made a huge mess of his life. But this older brother, who has not been with him, makes an assumption and slanderous accusation against him. What does he say? Well, he spent everything on prostitutes. Prostitutes. Nowhere in the text that Jesus tells us that, that this is the older son's conjecture. And maybe it's because that's where the older son would like to be. He's staying home, but he'd much rather be spending his time with the prostitutes. He's restricted himself. He's kept himself near to where he thinks he's supposed to be, but his heart really longs to be. He's lost. Now, everyone in here, if you're never too old to be like the younger brother, you're never too young to be like the older brother. And specifically, I want to talk to our good church kids and students who've you've grown up in church. I was a good church kid too. I remember growing up in church and just thinking, man, I'm all right. I'm not perfect, but I don't say those curse words that those other kids on the block say. I don't look at all the things that everyone else does. I I don't listen to the same music that everyone else listens to. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good kid. He may look at others in school or cousins and think that, yeah, they're foolish. I'm, I'm decent. I'm good. I'm a Christian kid. I go to church every Sunday. I go to church on Sunday night. I go to church on Wednesday night. I go to VBS. I don't miss it. I learn my catechism. I memorize my verses. I always pray before meals. Jesus, he, he wants to save good kids like me. That's what I thought when I was a kid and a teenager. That 
Jesus died for good church kids like me in order that I could be saved. And the Lord had to show me in his word and by his spirit that I was not a good church kid and that my own record of goodness could not earn or merit God's salvation or love. There was a time where we all have trouble comprehending the grace of God. It seems too much. It seems like there must be some part we play in receiving his grace. There must be something we do. We too, the longer we're around church, it may come back to us that we then forget how wondrous his grace is. There's a story about a man who painted a picture of the prodigal son story, an artist. And there's been plenty of famous paintings. This isn't one of the famous ones. Rembrandt has a famous one of the father embracing the younger son and the older brother looking over with a side glance, upset and concerned. This was another painting. I, I don't know the artist's name, but in his painting, he had the father waiting at the gate. And he said, here is, here is a picture of grace. The father waiting for his son to return. And someone who knew the Bible said, no, you got it wrong. The father runs out to him. That's what grace is. The father runs to meet him. And so the artist redid the painting. And what he did to communicate the urgency of the father's yearning love for his returning son and the grace towards him is that he gave the dad two different shoes as if he was in such a hurry he forgot to match his tennis shoes to go meet the sun coming out to him. And that's a better picture of grace, but here it still goes beyond our comprehension that the father would then look at the older son and in verses 31 and 32 insist that the older son would come in. As I read it, I want to cut off the older son as a lesson and make him suffer and say, you're not happy that your younger brothers come back? Why don't you experience destitution for a while and see how that feels? That's not what the father says. He says, all I have is yours. Once you come in, this brother of yours has come from death to life. It's the plea of the father. There's this kind rebuke. Here we see the kindness of God, both to the younger brother and to the older brother that leads them to repentance. It's intended to lead him to repentance, but we're left with a cliffhanger. We don't know if he takes the father's offer and comes in. But it's amazing that the invitation is for raunchy sinners and for righteous religious sinners. Come, come home to the father and know his celebration. Many of you can relate to what I shared about my experience and testimony of being around the church my whole life. You know what it's like to be in the church, to do what is necessary, but your heart isn't for the Father. Your heart doesn't long for the Father. Your heart is desiring the far country. And for whatever reason, 
for social reasons, for family reasons, there's enough restraint that in God's providence you haven't made your escape to the far country, but you long for it. What is the amazing thing in this story? Is that the father's heart yearns for the younger brother and for the older brother. The father's compassion doesn't just extend to the reckless prodigal, but to the prodigal in his own yard. That the father insists that he would come in. And here, this brings us to our last thing. Jesus is giving us a window for all sinners, a window into seeing the character of God. In the brothers, we have a mirror for ourselves, but in this story, we have a window in what the God of the universe is like. Both of these brothers underestimate the generous love of their father. Both of them, at one point, were interested in the father's stuff, but not the father. Both of them are then run over by the father's extravagant, unmerited love. What does it tell us about the character of God? That God is disposed to pardon our sins. That this is his ready posture to all sinners, both near and far, ready to pardon our sins. And when we come, we are met with unmerited love. We see here what of God's character that he is a God who welcomes sinners and gives them unmerited love. He does not make them earn his love, but he sets their love on them. As Matthew Henry once said, God loves us because he loves us. That's it. He loves us with an unmerited love. God's forgiveness is total and immediate. Those three things we see in this passage. It's not a full catechism of the gospel and a full system of doctrine, but we see God is disposed to pardon our sins. God welcomes sinners with unmerited love, and God's forgiveness is total and immediate. That there's not a probation period when you come to Christ and say, start here and a little forgiveness, and then next step, more forgiveness, more forgiveness, but instant, total, immediate forgiveness for all those who come to God in Christ. The passage begins with the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees, and what Jesus is telling us is that their grumbling reveals great gospel truth. This man receives and eats with sinners. This man receives and eats with sinners like you and I. And I said, this isn't the whole gospel. This is not a full statement of salvation. Some have erred and said, well, see, in this passage, there's no atonement. There's no substitution. There's no payment. And they forget that what we're learning about the Father is being told to us by the third son in Luke chapter 15. The third son is the eternal son of God who has come on a rescue mission to die in the place of his people and for their sins. It is the third son who is then telling us, I know you can't believe this about my father, but this is what he was like. 
And this is who he is. And he is ready for you to come home. And he is so ready for you to come home that he will give me for you. Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all thing? The reason for salvation is the love of God. The cost of salvation is the cross of the eternal son of God. In this passage, to be clear, you miss the point of the passage if you think, well, see, godless self-indulgence and partying is okay. No, that's only taking a, a little sliver of the party that's happening. Remember, the party in the Father's house is for those who repent, but when they repent, all of heaven rejoices. The Father's house is a place of feasting and rejoicing for those who would see their sin and turn to God, apprehending the mercy that is held out to them in Christ. So we must ask ourselves three questions. Am I like the older or the younger son? Am I still in the far-off country? Or am I near the things of God, his people, his church, but I secretly want to be in the far-off country? The second thing we need to ask ourselves is that as a church, as a body, do we want to be the church of the older brother? Or do we want to be the church of the Father's extravagant love? A place that when the broken, hurting, rebellious sinners are brought from death to life, we celebrate the God of the gospel. And the last thing, very specifically, is that do you need to come home to the Father through the Son this morning. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this story and its lessons, it stings our self-righteousness, it shows us our lostness, but the hope here in this passage, we want to tell ourselves it's too good to be true. And we couldn't believe it except that Jesus has told us, this is what you were like. And so we come to you because we have nowhere else to turn. We come to you because our sin will result in death and there's only life with you. We come to you and seek to abide in your house and in your family, set free from our guilt and shame because there's nowhere else we can bring that guilt and shame. To have it removed and replaced with the righteousness of another and to be adopted into the family of God. So we come to you and we extend to lost sinners the invitation of our Heavenly Father that he would turn, he would not turn any away who would come to him humbly, trusting in the son that he gave.
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.